Take your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Caring for the church is a big task. Uh, This became evident very quickly in the early church. And within just a matter of a few short months, a conflict arose because some felt that they were not being adequately cared for. They felt left out in the church. We see this in Acts chapter 6. Now, interestingly, the apostles did not step in to solve the problem. Instead, they instructed the church to select a group of men to oversee the care for those individuals. The spiritual care of the church is demanding and requires much time for prayer and study and discipleship. Rather than pull the pastors, the apostles, from that noble task, the solution was to institute godly men into a group who would oversee those issues. Now, the title deacon is not found there in Acts chapter 6. But all indications are that this group of men are the precursor to what became known as the office of deacon. By the time that Paul penned 1 Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, around 30 years later, this office, the office of deacon, had been firmly established. Now, we need to ask the question as we consider the office of deacon, even in our own church, we need to ask a couple of questions. What is a deacon and what is a deacon to be? Now, there's a lot of confusion about these questions today. And as we consider the church, we understand there are two God-ordained offices in the church, the office of pastor and the office of deacon. And we spent three weeks looking at what a pastor is to be. Now, next, Paul addresses the other ordained office, the office of deacon. And in this section, he addresses what a deacon is to be. Now, as we work through this, I hope that this will be help, uh, help to you as a body of Christ. Each year, you select from among yourself men who will serve in this office. Now, in many places and in many churches, these kinds of selections serve as a kind of uh, popularity contest. They base it on likability or business acumen. But as we look at this text, I believe that we will see, we'll discover... There's much more that needs to be considered as we consider men and select men to be deacons. Let's look at this text, 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse number 8. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As we look through this passage, we'll note uh, the deacon's role, the deacon's qualifications, 
and the deacon's reward. However, as we look through this text, we should note that this section is incredibly similar to the previous section. Both the office of pastor and the office of deacon require many of the same qualities. Why? Because they're qualities of an individual being a mature Christian. In other words, both offices require godly men. First, I want to consider the role of deacon. That first word gives rise to the first section of the text through the question it raises and the answer it provides, the deacon's role. What is a deacon? What does a deacon do? Now, the truth is, if we went around the room and had each of you answer that, I think we would be surprised by the variety in the answers that would be given. There's a lot of confusion today regarding the role of a deacon. Uh, Some would say that the deacons, they run the church. That's what they do. They're responsible for making sure that the church operates properly. They keep the pastors in line and the people in line. Uh, Others might respond that the deacon, actually, they really don't do much. I mean, they meet once a month, and they just kind of approve whatever the pastor decides. That's what deacons do. Others would respond that the deacons simply care for the finances of the church. Others respond that the deacons, well, they're responsible for taking people out to eat, uh, making the people's, meeting the people's physical needs, going to the people's houses, and doing all kinds of work. In other words, they're basically the pastor without Teaching responsibilities. That's what the deacons do. So what is the deacon's role? Biblically, as you look at Scripture, what is a deacon to do? Well, in order to understand this, uh, we're going to look at the deacon's role in Scripture and the deacon's role today. Now, a look at Scripture reveals a lack of concrete explanation for what a deacon is to do. If you look at Scripture and you ask what is a pastor to do, there are uh, really the entire book of 2 Timothy is about that. But as you ask the question, what is a deacon to do, there's, there's a lack of exclama- uh, explanation. In fact, they are only mentioned as an office two times in Scripture, in this text and in Philippians 1.1. Now, some point to Acts 6 as the institution of the office, and And there are indications that are there that the office may have developed out of this, but it's really only a rudimentary example of what it might entail. In Acts 6, it says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching in the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So in that text, we learn that these men were put in place to free the pastors, to give themselves to the spiritual care of the people. But there's not a lot here. I mean, they they basically, they distributed food to widows is how they did this. So we're left to turn to the other two passages. Now in Philippians 1.1, well, there it just simply lists the name of the office. 
doesn't say anything else about it. And it's really the same, that name there is the same as the first word in our text here, deacons. But from this word, we get some insights into what they're to do. This word deacon, diakonos, it means servant or helper. The root of the word really is the idea to wait on or to care for or provide for. The Greeks, this is important because the Greeks usually saw uh, serving others as a menial job. You don't serve other people. People were to rule, not serve. And the highest good was to develop yourself into a ruler. Now, serving the state, that was different. That was okay. But service to others, that's demeaning. That's what slaves did. But Jesus teaches that serving others is the mark of true discipleship. In fact, Jesus proclaimed himself that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45. Now, while it's not clear what the duties of the deacon were in the first century, the title implies that they were probably responsible for physically serving the church. We can also infer some things from the from the qualifications that we're going to look at in a moment. For instance, they were not to be double tongued. That's going to indicate that they interacted with church members regularly. They were in direct contact with many in the church body. There's a requirement that they not be greedy for gain, greedy for money. It seems to indicate that they had some responsibility for church finances. But an honest conclusion as you look through what Scripture says is that the Bible does not give a lot of indication as to the actual duties of a deacon. So it is wise then for us to consider the development of that office through history and then its role today. So let's consider the deacon's role today. When we consider the historical development of the office of deacon, uh, we look at the church fathers. These are a group of men who were discipled by the apostles. They were the disciples of the disciples. Uh, one of these men is a man named Justin Martyr. He was a disciple of John Zebedee. Now, Justin Martyr, who lived uh, and ministered in the early uh, second century, informs us in one of his writings that the deacons cared for those who were shut in and unable to attend the regular assembly of the church body. The Didache, it's a collection of writings from the church fathers. It suggests that deacons distributed the funds. In other words, they were responsible for the church finances. By the third century, the deacons had developed into a role that served the bishop or the pastor, providing the official link between him and the congregation. Uh, they visited the poor, they distributed funds, and they informed the pastor of the congregation's needs. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because it helps us understand the application of what we see in Scripture. From Acts 6 in our text today, we see that deacons serve the church in ways that free the pastor to minister to the spiritual needs of the people, to give himself to study and prayer and discipleship. So this would involve the physical care for, or today we might say the business side of the church. 
Further, they provide a vital link between the pastor and the people. But this lack of black and white teaching in Scripture about what a deacon is to do also informs us that there's a lot of leeway for what the roles of this office entail. Churches seem to have some freedom to tailor the office to the specific needs of that church, provided those functions don't encroach on the authority of the pastor. So here's how we have tailored the office in our church. The deacons are responsible for the business of the church. They oversee the finances, the building, and the serving of the church. Monthly they gather and they hear reports on the finances, on the building, and the work of our deaconess committee. They make decisions based on the information they hear for the betterment of the church. We've also divided the church up into care groups so we can attempt to better care for the needs of the body. But how each deacon carries out these responsibilities will look different with each man. Why? Because each man is a little bit different, has different gifts and abilities. What's interesting is that in Scripture, the Bible speaks more about what a deacon is to be than about what a deacon is to do. Why is that? Well, because if a deacon is the right kind of man, he will naturally do the right things that are needed in his role of deacon. So what is a deacon to be? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to turn next to the deacon's qualifications. Verses 8 through 12. You know, today, candidates for leadership in the church are often measured by the sort of criteria applied in the business world. Education. A political acumen, political savvy, a creativity, likability, energy, not to mention perhaps even attractive, fashionable outward appearance. Those all determine whether someone is suitable or not, typically in a church. But as we look at this text, we'll discover that these qualifications that people typically think of are actually at odds with what Scripture says are to be the qualifications of a deacon. The Bible's expectations. Note verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Now, as we did with the pastor's qualifications, we're going to divide this list into the same three categories. We have first qualifications of character. Qualifications of character. Verse 8. Dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. It's interesting as well. He says deacons likewise. In the same way that pastors are to fulfill these qualifications, deacons are to do this as well. First qualification of character is that they are to be dignified. What does this word mean? Well, this word means to be serious, stately, worthy of respect. It signifies a seriousness of character 
and mind. One man put it this way. It refers to lofty things, majestic things, things that lift the mind from the cheap and tawdry to that which is noble and good uh, and, and, and the end of moral worth. This word indicates that the man is worthy of respect because he's capable of being serious. In this silly world, this is an ever-important qualification. One crisis in our culture is that many men never grow up. They're just big kids. They're immature and they're unable to think seriously. When they're called upon to think seriously, they simply can't handle it. Because they're all about fun. They're all about the simple answer, the quick answer. Frankly, these men ought not be deacons. Another commentator said, A deacon must not be a silly, flippant person, one who makes light of serious manners, matters. Although not a cold, joyless person, a deacon understands the seriousness of life. So as you consider men to be deacon, you need to ask, are they dignified? Are they able to be serious about, ser- about serious matters? Secondly, we see that they're not to be double-tongued. Double-tongued. Now, this means to be, not to be consistent in what one says. Literally, this word double-tongued, it comes from two words, double-tongued, two Greek words, di-logos, meaning two words. The deacon's role requires them to interact with the congregation regularly. It also means that they're going to be aware of many things that people in the congregation, the average person, is not aware of. They see the dark side of the church. And it's vital that they're trustworthy in their speech. They don't say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. They keep confidences. They don't speak out of turn. And when they do speak, they speak the truth. They say what's accurate. You know, double-tongued people spread havoc in the church. They pit people against one another. It's vital that the deacon not be one of those people because of the influence and the information that they have. If you can't trust what a person says, you ought not be a deacon. I spent time with pastors who can't trust their deacons to keep confidences. It severely limits what they can do and it destroys the church. Deacons must be men who have control over their tongues. They keep silent when they should not say things. And they're faithful to the truth when they do speak. Next, we see that they should not be a drunkard, not addicted to much wine. Now, we did not take time to note this when we covered the qualifications of the deacons, because, of the pastor, because we spread that way out. We covered a lot of things. But I want to note it here. These men lived in a society in which the water was not safe to drink. As a result, they would mix wine uh, into the water in order to kill the parasites and make it drinkable. The problem came when the people would eschew water altogether and they would drink wine and hard liquor like we have today. 
And in Ephesians 5, Paul reveals that we cannot be filled with alcohol and filled with the Spirit at the same time. Now, we live in a society that has been destroyed by alcohol. Many of our own families have been destroyed by it. And while Scripture does not condemn drinking alcohol, it does condemn drunkenness because of the destruction that it breeds. And frankly, we live in a different society today. In the first century, they did not have a lot of beverage options, right? They didn't get to go over to the pop machine and get whatever they want. Pepsi didn't exist. They were not blessed yet. No, they only had a few options. But today, we've got a lot of options. And knowing the effects of drunkenness, I simply question, why would a Christian choose to pursue and participate in alcohol at all? It's It's not a sin to do it, but it doesn't seem very wise. When it comes to deacons, They can't be a man addicted to wine. For those who are drunk with alcohol are not filled with the Spirit. They must be men who are filled with the Spirit. Next, we see that because the deacons oversee the finances of the church, it's vital that they not be greedy for money. You know, it'd be easy to manipulate or direct contracts in such a way that would benefit yourself financially. Many a deacon through history has been found guilty of embezzlement. Frankly, anyone who has access to church finances has the opportunity to act dishonestly. We live in a society that values finances above everything else. You need to make money, work harder to get more and get ahead and Many see the church as an opportunity to advance in the business world. This ought not be the case for deacons. We think, well, surely they wouldn't do that. But we're reminded of one of Christ's own apostles, one of his own disciples. John 12, 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Even for deacons, even for leaders, it would be tempting. You see, the deacon is not to be perceived as greedy. Because the goal is not personal gain, but God's glory. We're reminded of Proverbs 11.3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. One of the quickest ways to destroy a church is to elevate men into leadership who are consumed with money. The deacon is to be a man of upright character. He's to be a man who thinks seriously, who's worthy of respect, not given to drunkenness or to money. These are the qualifications of character. But there's also some qualifications of spiritual maturity. Find these in verses 9 and 10. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Here we see two important qualifications of spiritual maturity. First, they are to be spiritually mature. 
Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This means that deacons are to understand the word and obey it. While they're not necessarily called to teach the word, they're not to be novices in what the Bible says. They need to have a firm grasp on the mystery of faith. Now, we'll get into this idea of the mystery of faith, what exactly that is next week. Because the next section of 1 Timothy really goes into detail of that. But we could summarize the mystery of faith simply as stating it is the gospel. Mystery, it's a significant word in Paul's theology. In Paul's writings, this word comes 21 times. And as you look at each of those uses, it reveals that it refers to knowledge that is beyond the reach of sinners, but has now been graciously revealed to us through the gospel, specifically the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he invites us to himself and that we ought to live for him. Really, we could summarize the statement this way. Deacons are not to be spiritual novices. They know what the Bible says. They understand the gospel and they place a priority on it. Further, Paul tells us that they do this with a clear conscience. In other words, they obey the messages of the Bible. Commentator put it this way. For Christ's sake, the qualified deacon watches himself scrupulously, doing all in his power to remain in the closest possible union with him. That is with the most sublime of all divinely disclosed mysteries, namely God revealed in the flesh for the salvation on equal terms of Jew and Gentile. This is important because as deacons discuss the issues and the needs of the church, it's vital that they're able to do so in a scriptural way. It would be very easy to simply make pragmatic decisions easy decisions, but it's vital that they not simply do that because they're overseeing God's work. It's vital that they do it God's way, but they can't do it God's way if they don't know God's word. They can't do this if they don't study the word and they can't do this if they don't obey the word. So as you consider men to be deacons, you have to ask the question, are they spiritually mature? Do they demonstrate that they understand the Bible and what God expects? Second, though, we see that they are to be tested and blameless. Verse 10, let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. The need for spiritual maturity is so great that there should be a time of testing and observation before a man is put into that position. This requirement should raise two questions. Who does the observing and the testing? And what is the basis? What are they looking for? Well, Acts 6 seems to indicate that the observing and testing is carried out by the church body, the assembly of believers. The apostles said, call out from among yourselves seven men. 
And after a period of observation and finding nothing against the individual, only then would they be eligible to serve as a deacon. This is why we require here at Cambria that an individual be a member for at least a year before they can even be considered for this office. What is the basis? What, is the, what are we to be looking for? Well, the basis is these qualifications laid out in this text. They are spiritually mature. It's to be a thoughtful and careful examination of his life by the congregation that is aware of these qualifications. It's not enough that the individual grew up in the church. It's not enough that they've been a member for a long time. It's just their turn. It's not enough that he's a likable person. That he's just really nice. No, he must be a spiritually mature man who understands and obeys the word of God. A man who is capable of serious thought and respected in the church. These are the qualifications for spiritual maturity. But there's a final section of qualifications. Qualifications of home life. Verse 11. Their, li- their wives likewise must be dignified Not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let the deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. See, first, that they're to have godly wives. Verse 11, their wives must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Now, immediately, we need to acknowledge a disagreement among many with the interpretation of this text. And it surrounds that word, wives. The root is the Greek word gune, and it can be translated as woman or as wife. You have to make a decision. Which one is it? Because if this, because of this, some say that this is introducing women into the office of deacons. Because of this, they say, see, women should be doing this. Others say that this must be introducing a third office in the church. But as we look at the text, I think we can see that neither is the case for two primary reasons. First, the structure of the text would argue against either of these interpretations. In order for those to be true, you're forced to make the text disjointed. Paul talks about deacons, and then suddenly he talks about this group of women, and then he goes back to talking about deacons, as if he forgot to say some things. There's no reason for Paul to order the text that way. Further, the arrangement fits with the topic of the deacon's home life. Verses 11 and 12 are developing the common theme of the deacon's family. His wife must be blameless. He must be faithful in his marriage. His children need to be well managed. These verses are are dealing with the same topic. It seems to indicate that they go together. Second... The context provides for us the proper translation of the word. Is it wife or is it woman? Here's why we say that. That exact same word occurs in verse 12, where it is said he should be the husband of one wife. We would translate it in the same way where it has to refer as wife. So Paul presents the reality that when considering a man for the office of deacon, we should also look at his wife. Why? Why does Paul do that? That seems odd. 
Well, because the nature of the deacon's ministry means that his spouse is going to play a role in that ministry. So we see that the wife is not to be a slanderer. That is the word diablos. It's actually the word we get devil from. She is not to speak like the devil did slandering. We think of Satan in Genesis 3. When he came to Eve, what did he say about God? God's not who he says he is. He doesn't have your best in mind. And he began to speak ill of God. That's the way Satan works. He slanders others. Because the deacons have such influence in the church, the wife also gains a platform. And she can quickly destroy the church if she has a loose tongue. If she uses that influence and platform to slander other people. If the wife cannot control her tongue, the man should not be a deacon. We also see that she is to be sober-minded. That's the same word that's used all the way back in verse 2 in the qualification for a pastor. It means to be clear-headed. It means to think seriously and biblically. This is important because if the wife is unable to think seriously and biblically, she'll quickly become disenchanted with her husband's ministry. It's vital that she be a good help to her husband in this way. Third, we see that she is to be faithful. She's to be reliable. If she's not faithful, then the deacon will not be free to care for the church. He'll be required to spend all his time caring for his family, picking up for his wife. However, a wife who is faithful in all things both frees her husband to faithfully serve the church and advances that ministry through her own God-given gifts and abilities. So, he is to have a godly wife. Second, he is to have godly morals. A deacon is to have godly morals. Verse 12, let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Now, we spent a lot of time going over this qualification when we discussed the qualifications of the pastor. And it means the same thing here. Here as there, we conclude that this is not referring to a man's marital state alone, but rather to his moral character. He's faithful to his wife. If divorce has occurred in the past, sufficient time has passed in which the individual has demonstrated faithfulness either in singleness or in his current marriage. They're not perverted. They're not ladies' men. They're not Casanovas. They're faithful in their morals. We also see, thirdly, that they're to have godly management. Managing their children and their households well. The word manage is the same one we saw in verse 4. It means to lead or to rule over. The deacon is to manage his children well. He ought to be a man who has his children under control. A man who cannot discipline and disciple his children cannot lead the church. The way a man leads in the home gives a picture to how he is going to lead in the church. So it's wise for a church to look at the man's children as they consider him in the role of a deacon. Now, as I stated when discussing this qualification of a pastor, we understand that that every individual makes their own choices. 
right? Some children rebel simply because they're rebellious. They're sinners. However, we all know the difference between children who rebel in spite of their parents' best biblical efforts and those who rebel because of the lack of their parents' best biblical efforts. Those who rebel in spite of their parents and those who rebel because of their parents. We understand the difference. Those children who are arrogant, unruly, lazy, and undisciplined in spite of their parents and those who are arrogant, unruly, lazy, and undisciplined because of their parents. So the deacon ought to have demonstrated that he knows how to disciple because he disciples his children. But this management, this control is also over his household. He's to do so in an excellent way. As with the pastor, a household of the deacons includes not just his family, but also his holdings and his finances. He needs to manage in an excellent way everything God entrusts to him. This means that a man who cannot handle his finances is not qualified to be a deacon. A man who practices poor stewardship with his finances is not a man who is qualified to be a deacon. Major role of the deacon is to oversee the finances of the church. If he can't handle his own finances, how in the world is he going to handle the finances of the church? If he makes foolish decisions with his own money, you can be sure that he's going to make foolish decisions with God's money. Household would also refer to his actual house. And if he can't take care of his earthly holdings, how can he take care of the eternal holdings God has entrusted to him? A man who will not labor to keep his house in order will not labor to keep God's house in order. But we see finally that for those men who are faithful and serve well as deacons, God promises a reward. Let's turn finally to the deacon's reward. Verse 13, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Why in the world would someone want to do that? Well, because there's a reward for it. In this verse, we see that the reward is twofold for those deacons who serve well. First, they receive a good standing. The word standing means reputation or influence. The church will think highly of those men because they've performed their job well. There's an honor to leadership. You're no longer anonymous. Everyone knows who you are. People recognize you. And when you serve well, they respect you. You gain a good reputation for your service. But these men also gain great confidence in their spiritual life. Great confidence. They receive affirmation of the church that they're spiritually mature, godly men who are walking with God. This gives them a boldness to declare their faith to others. Gives them a confidence in their standing, in their walk with God. Our church needs men like this. We're very thankful for the deacons that God has gifted this church. These men have been a blessing to the church. It's no no exaggeration to say that this church exists today because of the men who have served in this office over the past several years. But we need more. We need more. 
Men, I would encourage you to strive for this. Too many look at this and say, oh, it's just not me. I just can't do this. Well, you're saying you can't be a mature Christian is what you're saying. Because all it is is a group of mature Christians taking care of the church. You can do this. You ought to strive for this. We need more. And these qualifications are not qualifications of super Christians, but mature Christians. And so these are qualifications that everyone should strive to have. We should all work toward. To be serious about serious things. To grow in our understanding and obedience of Scripture. Not to be drunkards. To be wise. To take care of your family. To control your tongue. To be a person of God. One final challenge that I'll give before we get into the so what's is to be gracious to the men who are serving as deacons. There's a job that requires serious, hard decisions, serious thinking. Sometimes they may not do things the way you think they ought to be doing them. Churches you were raised in, expectations that you have of what a deacon ought to do is not what they're doing. And I'd remind you that the Bible is very unclear, leaves a whole lot of leeway as to exactly what a deacon is to do. So rather than be critical of them, love them, care for them. Pray for them. Help them help you by telling them what you need, by sharing with them your burdens. When they talk to you each month and ask how you're doing, don't give the stock answer of, we're great. It's amazing. Everybody's awesome. Lego movie's true. We know that that's not the case. So be honest. Let us care for you well. Serve them as they serve you. So what? Let me give you four today. Number one, examine your life and seek to live as a mature Christian. Don't see these lists in 1 Timothy 3 for the pastor and the deacon simply as lists for those special super Christians that serve in those roles. That's not the case. These are lists of what it means to be a mature believer that all of us should strive to fulfill. So examine your life and seek to live as a mature Christian. This means, number two, that you need to control your tongue. Control your tongue. Be faithful in what you say. We live in a hypercritical world. A world that is very quick to say how people are doing things wrong and should be doing things differently. You know, they didn't quite clean that the way they should have. You know, they should have made that decision instead of this decision. We live in a very critical world. Control your tongue. Be faithful. Be uplifting. Reminded of the text that says, let no unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for the use of edifying, that it can minister grace to those who hear it. Number three, develop a godly home. It's interesting that each of these lists of qualifications spend significant time on the home life. We saw why that's so important last week. Because the home is the foundation of society. The home is the foundation of the church. We live in a world that is so enamored with money and job that it is not unusual for families to spend all their time at work and no time investing in their family. This ought not be the case with us. 
No one on their deathbed says, boy, I wish I had worked more. I just didn't spend enough time at the office. Everyone on their deathbed says, I wish I had spent more time with my family. Because we understand what's so important. So seek to develop a godly family. Invest in your family. Number four, carefully consider what men should be deacons. November will be upon us before we know it. It's coming in a hurry. You're going to have to select some men to serve. So carefully consider the members of this church and men that ought to serve. And you ought to seek to do it. Don't look for excuses not to do it. The frustration as a pastor, having done this now for close to two decades, is the amount of godly qualified men who say, well, let's just let someone else do it. Well, let's just let other people have their turn. Sometimes they try to couch it well. Let's let the young guys have a chance. How about if we let everyone have a chance? If you're qualified, serve. Seek to be qualified. Strive to serve the church. And as you consider, consider carefully, according to this list, what men should serve in this role and advance this church for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift that you have given this church and the men who serve in this role of deacons. Lord, they have been a blessing. They have been an encouragement. They have been wise. They have saved us from much trouble. They've advanced us in great ways. Lord, I'm particularly grateful for the group of men this last year who have had to try to lead us through just an unusual time in which there were no right answers. And yet they daily strove to make decisions according to your word. As we met and discussed decisions to be made consistently, multiple would say, what does the Bible say about this? What principles apply? Lord, I'm so thankful for them. Help us to honor who would do well in that position. Help them to grow in spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness, to consider how they might serve the church well, to strive to grow maturity. Lord, I pray that all of us would seek to make you look as good as you really are by living daily for you. That we would see these qualifications not as lists for others, but as lists for ourselves. As things to strive for, that we might advance the kingdom until the day that you return. Lord, I pray that you would bless our church. Continue to bring people to us that need to hear the gospel. That would fit well in our body of Christ. That we might do well in discipling the saints and evangelizing the lost. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.